Welcome to Cancer HealthCast, where science is driving hope. I'm your host, Nikki Henderson. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Cameron Rathmel, the 17th director of the National Cancer Institute. Dr. Rathmel is a renowned kidney cancer expert and influential leader in cancer research and patient care. Dr. Rathmel was selected by President Biden to succeed Dr. Monica Bertignoli, who left NCI to become the director of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Rathmel, we're so honored to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Looking forward to having this conversation. Great. Well, Dr. Rathmel, now that you are settling in at your new position as the 17th director of the National Cancer Institute, what would you say is your biggest priority to accomplish in the short and longer terms, especially when it comes to advancing cancer research and improving health outcomes for millions of cancer patients? Right. Thank, thank you for that question, because I, I think the short and long term is important. I think the, the short term, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this in, in, um, in this interview, is getting to know the NCI. I've, I've been a part of the NCI for decades, and I've known many, many facets of it, but it's so big and so really marvelously complicated. And so the short term is is really a listening to or learning and learning as fast as I can. But that won't take too long. So the long term starts pretty, pretty soon. You know, what I where I think organizations can really thrive is when they have strong connections. And so I think my my agenda will be around building connections. That'll be connections across the institution with other with other institutes and centers, with other parts of the government and with the whole nation. So that's where I think we can make some of the biggest inroads. Um, things already are happening in that space, of course, uh, but there's always room for more. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Rathmel. So why and how do you feel you are uniquely qualified for the job? And can you recall any specific experiences during your professional career that you plan on bringing to bear on your leadership tenure here at NCI? So it wasn't really until I was thinking about this job and all of the different facets of tackling cancer that I realized how many parts of my background really set me up well for this. So first, I'm, I'm a scientist. I've been doing cancer uh, biology since I was a graduate student, and I've really been fascinated by cancer and, and can really speak the language pretty broadly. And I've been a fairly uh, eclectic scientist. I'm a molecular biologist, but we've done metabolism and angiogenesis and all of the, all of the kind of core aspects of cancer biology have, have been a part of what my my laboratory has studied. But I'm a medical oncologist. I've been treating patients for 20 years with kidney cancers, uh, working with metastatic disease, rare hereditary uh, forms of kidney cancer, and, you know, kind of seeing that from lots and lots of different angles. I've run clinical trials and really been a part of some of the guideline development around the clinical aspects. So I think those two things are really the essence of what you have to have in background to put your arms around the NCI. But the thing that I think has been so far the most valuable in preparing me for this has been 
the experience that I've had as uh, Department of Medicine chair, which is in broader than cancer, and having some perspective of running a help, helping to run a healthcare system, and you know, working very closely with primary care physicians and with other specialists that also interact with cancer. And frankly, being a, a department chair through the pandemic and learning how to assemble teams very quickly and to respond to very rapidly changing sets of guidelines and experiences and meeting the needs of uh, broad communities and various different stakeholders. So I think it's all of those things together that really have made this very fun and very comfortable and feeling like the levers are all available to me. So uh, I'm I'm really having a good time and feeling like I just can settle in so nicely and work with all of the different stakeholders so far speaking their language. Right. Well, that's awesome. It's wonderful to hear about your experiences and how they're tying into your new role. That's great. Well, what do you see as the biggest opportunities and challenges facing the cancer research community? Well, I think the opportunities are really incredible. I think that the science is at a place where we can make just massive improvements in how we eradicate cancers, how we detect cancers, how we just manage them. The science of immunology, the science of genetics, it's just the things at our fingertips are so thrilling and exciting. So I think that, you know, beyond the kind of harder sciences, I think the fact that the science of implementation science and science in populations and learning how we bring these discoveries out to best serve people is also really at a great place. So I think I think the opportunities far outweigh any challenges that there are. Uh, there are always going to be headwinds, but there are so many things that we can do and uh, really at a pivotal place to just change the way cancer is experienced entirely. Great. That is very exciting. Well, many have lamented the decline in public confidence in science and in medicine since the COVID-19 pandemic. What can NCI do to restore this trust? So I'm also worried about this decline in trust in science and in medicine. I think that there are real societal changes that have happened. The opportunities for everyone to have immediate access to information, to a broad amount of information, sometimes information that previously you know, only your doctor could know or only, your, only a scientist could know because it was hidden in texts and libraries that people didn't have access to or, or, or couldn't readily put their fingers on. That's not true anymore. Everything is widely available. I think that presents some challenges in how we help people process that information, really understand it in context. And, and while that's a challenge, I think that's a tremendous opportunity. So I think that there are incredible inroads that we can make here by increasing the transparency of what we do, acknowledging that people will see everything in real time and will expect to, to see it in, in that way. And, and so we, we need to meet the public where they are. We need to respect them, right? We, we need to show that we know that they are interested in, in the decisions that are happening 
inside of science and medicine. And that's great. And, and I think embracing that, really making it something that everyone can be a part of is how we'll get a, a real change in people being able to trust and, and be able, believe in and be a part of science and medicine. Yes, I agree that the pandemic was a, a very difficult time. There was all sorts of information coming from all different directions. So it was a crazy time. But like you said, respect, honesty, transparency, I think those are all very important for regaining the public's trust. So I really appreciate that, Dr. Rathmel. Thanks. Wow. I'll, I'll, I'll actually follow up if I can, because I, 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 sure, I, like sure. I, I think providing credible and honest information even when you know that that information isn't completely fully amalgamated, right? So, um, but helping people know where there there are still things that are evolving, but giving them that credible information and being very honest about where you are, I think I think that can make all the difference. We definitely saw that in in our experience in the pandemic. Right. Well, your predecessor launched the National Cancer Plan. Do you think that will be useful moving forward? And what makes the National Cancer Plan impressive in your view? Well, I, I love the National Cancer Plan. <laughs> um, so first, when you look at the eight goals of the National Cancer Plan, it it's what we've been doing and what we have embraced as the essential pillars of how we tackle cancer forever. But putting them together on one piece of paper uh, makes a big difference. It makes it easier to articulate. It's easier to see the connections between the, the various components of how we look at cancer. The thing that I like most about the plan is one point that probably hadn't been well articulated before, which is that everyone is a part of the national cancer effort. And, and that is really everyone. It's scientists and providers, but it's patients and caregivers, and it's everyone. Everyone has risk for cancer. Everyone has experienced uh, cancer in one way or another through friends or family or colleagues. And everyone plays a part in how we prevent cancer and how we live healthy lifestyles and how we uh, manage cancer more um, expeditiously. So, and and how we talk about cancer. And it gets back to the public trust and and the integration between the science and the um, healthcare is is all everyone's issue. So that that particular bullet is my favorite one as a centerpiece. Okay, that's great. Because like you said, we can really get so much more accomplished when we all work together. And cancer is something that has touched all of us in some way or another. So that's that's very true. Well, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have put a lot of effort into leading and building support for cancer research with the goal to end cancer as we know it. Most notably, they have reignited the Biden cancer moonshot to dramatically accelerate progress in the fight against cancer and set a goal to cut the cancer mortality rate in half by 2047. What will it take to reach this goal what is it about the cancer moonshot that is encouraging? And how does all of this weave together for the benefit of America's cancer patients and their families? So there's a lot in there. And I think the, um, in the, let's just, the moonshot in particular, I think 
that having energy and momentum, particularly from the White House, that's really invaluable. And, you know, having a charge, you know, that that always helps, you know, sort of galvanize people around like, you know, let's see how fast we can make a change, right? Where will that change come? It's going to come in all different aspects. We we see cancers on a on a on a regular basis, which is just so exciting now that previously were it hard to treat or almost impossible to treat, where there there are now therapies that can extend life by years uh, or or even eradicate the cancers entirely. So for some cancers, it will be you know pushing toward you know treatments that we manage once it's detected. Some of the biggest bang is going to happen in prevention. We, you know, initiatives that tackle head on some of the the bigger drivers of of cancer: smoking, obesity, um, alcohol abuse, you know, other uh, environmental exposures. You know, if if people never have to experience cancer, that's even better. <laughs> so, um, so reducing by a number like fifty percent is very realistic changing the experience from one where we don't talk about cancer because there's just too much fear associated with the word to something that we proactively try to prevent to a health condition that we screen for and manage early and have an an awareness of risk and trust in a system that can manage it most effectively when it's there. You know, I, I think that will change the experience of cancer all the way around. So, so that's, I, I think, where the moonshot can have its biggest uh, bang. If I may, though, while, while we're talking about the, the cancer moonshot, I've, I've been giving this a lot of thought, and I, I'm a, a big fan of the, you know, aerospace program and, you know, the thinking about how, how do we, what, what's the analogy between what we're trying to do and uh, what the attempt in success in putting a a human on the moon. Cancer is not one disease. Um, Cancer is a hard problem in aggregate, but it is hundreds or thousands of different types of ways that, that, you know, cells can go wrong and, and can harm the body. So it's, it's actually not analogous to putting one person on the moon. It's analogous to saying, we're going to put a person on the moon and we're going to colonize 12, 12 planets, you know, go. So there will be similarities with each planet, but each planet has its own distinct issues and, you know, how you're going to set it up successfully in each of these different spaces, you know, adds to the challenge, but that's okay. We're up to the challenge. Awesome. Well, as the new director at NCI, how do you see NCI working across the landscape with other federal agencies to address cancer, which is a major part of the president's strategy? And what do you think are the most promising elements of the White House strategy in terms of achieving this goal? So I I love the way this question is framed up around uh, working across federal agencies, because I think that those kinds of collaborations will be essential. This is not a problem that we solve just by understanding a molecular pathway that's making a cell go rogue and and then and turning it off. This is a problem that we tackle by also having connections to how healthcare is provided in rural parts of the country and 
This is a problem that we solve by understanding issues that get in the way of patients or individuals being able to effectively screen or prevent their cancer um, that are societal at large. This is a problem where um, you know we need to engage with um, all of the federal uh, departments to to really you know tackle whatever uh, intersection there is that can help us make cancer a, you know a very different experience for for patients. It's so big and and impacts so many people. It, it it's something where we we just can't have any sacred cows. There can't be any barriers to you know thinking across a boundary. So that that's where the the president's endorsement and encouragement through the cancer moonshot really, you know, gives us that open door, you know, that that license to be able to work across. So um, I, I love crossing boundaries, done it as a scientist, done it as a clinician. I think to do it at scale, you know, the, the sky's the limit. Oh, awesome. Well, there has been a lot of discussion around artificial intelligence. It seems like more and more is becoming a part of our daily lives in some form or fashion. What role do emerging technologies like AI play when it comes to cancer screenings and treatments and enhancing the quality of life for cancer patients? So AI is going to be transformative. It is already, as you as you said, it's, it's changing the way we live, but as it moves into healthcare, I am really excited about the future of having having a technology that can really amplify what humans are able to do. So just to give you one example, and, and there are multiple avenues and investigators working on the on the example that I'm going to give. Just just imagine if every X-ray that you have of the chest or a or a low dose CT can be analyzed by artificial intelligence very quickly. So that you get a rapid test result if you're screening for for lung cancer, just as one example. You know, yeah. radiologists can do that. It's time consuming. It's very expensive. There's a shortage of radiologists, just like there are of of other kinds of doctors. Mm-hmm. And um, and there are barriers that keep people from uh, pursuing lung cancer testing. It's expensive. It's time consuming. You know, it gets in the way, and they're not sure why it's valuable. But if it were quick, if it were easy, if it were less expensive, some of those barriers would, you know, this this is where artificial intelligence can really take us into a different place. And and that's one tiny example. There are hundreds of different ways that this is going to change the way we practice medicine. Well, me personally, I'm blown away just thinking about all the possibilities with AI and and just all the ways it will benefit cancer patients and improve their overall health outcomes. That's that's really incredible. Well, we know that you have been a bench researcher, a professor, and a physician. What do you bring from each of those experiences to your new job leading NCI? And how may they have shaped your approach to leadership? So I think there are two things that I learned and applied. And this spans being a scientist, being a clinician, being an administrator. The first is in all of those spaces and in the NCI, it it is all about the people. It it is always about the people. It's about developing good talent. It's about creating teams that can work together. It's about supporting people 
Uh, this is all about people, right? We're we're try, we're fighting cancer so that people can live longer, healthier lives, so that people's families are not disrupted by the diagnosis of cancer. But you know, this this is also about creating a workforce that is really energized to to work in this space. So it's all about the people. So that, that's number one. That's across every space that I've ever been. It's always about the people. And um, and I'll, I'll just add there that I'm still meeting lots of people at the NCI, but the, the people I've met are fantastic. The sense of mission is really over the top. People are really there, very dedicated to the work that they do. Okay. Uh, the other is, so I'll credit this uh, from being a scientist in my mental framework, but I think this is not unique to science, and I'll tell you why at the end, is that I, I approach a job like working at the NCI, just like I do at the bench and, you know, trying to understand um, a molecular pathway, which is, you know, observing what the variables are in this situation that I'm working with, looking at, you know, what is the current state, as far as I can understand it, uh, doing an experiment. And experiments mean testing the conditions, seeing what is strong and what's weak, seeing where um, sometimes things you think you can see, you understand better after you do an experiment. And so I, I like to think about the the things that I uh, do in testing my environment, like I'm doing experiments and then learning from them and, and moving forward, setting up the next hypothesis and doing the next, next experiment, right? So, but that's not, I, I think about that like a scientist because I'm a scientist, but here's, um, this is something I think everybody does this, right? So I I went back to business school in uh, 2021 and uh, got a master's degree in, in um, healthcare management. And, you know, I did that because I was moving into this more administrative role. I wanted to understand, you know, finance and operations and economics and accounting. And what I learned is that business people do the exact same thing. They just don't call it you know, I'm going to develop a hypothesis and then I'm going to do an experiment. They they say, um, you know, gathering my information and then I'm going to, you know, you know, do a test and see, you know, what the effect is. So we're all scientists. So um, so I, I think that's that's what I bring. But I, I think it's a natural part of, you know, how how we engage with our environment. Oh, wow. That's just awesome. All of your your roles are tying into this one. And I mean, that's really great to hear. Well, Dr. Rathmill, tell us about your upbringing. Starting in rural Nebraska, where you were born, I was especially intrigued upon hearing that. And I understand that you had a keen interest in remodeling projects that your family undertook while you were growing up. And how those experiences of building a better place may have impacted your leadership style throughout your career and may continue to do so here at NCI. And although your parents were educators, you also have this interesting backstory about growing up that's lifted straight out of an HGTV show. Can you please uh, tell us about some of those experiences and impressions uh, they made on you? Yep, absolutely. It's yeah. So, so I was raised in Nebraska and then uh, moved to Iowa. My family moved 
about every four or five years. My, uh, as you uh, said, my parents were educators. My dad was an, a middle school science teacher. Then he went back and got a graduate degree and moved on into administration. He was a principal and then he was a school superintendent in a small school and then a school superintendent in a little bit bigger school, always in the public school systems. And, and, and so that's why our family was moving. And my mother was a teacher too, but this is the 1970s, but she decided to be a shop teacher. So industrial arts. So she had, uh, and had an interest in, uh, architecture and, but was training in the sixties and, and, you know, as a woman was, um, funneled into education. And so was really one of the only female shop teachers, uh, in the day. Right. So, uh, so she worked in middle school and high schools and, you know, taught boys how to make mailboxes and birdhouses and, and do electrical work and, and operate heavy machinery and, I, I will, uh, before I talk about the, the building part, I will say that both of my parents were very invested in people. I think that was a, a big part of, in my upbringing is, you know, developing people and, and working with uh, particularly kids who were struggling for one reason or another and helping them find their way. So, so you know, my mom had this interesting skill set. Um, and as we would move from small town to small town, uh, each time we would take over a house that needed some love. I, I remember very distinctly when I was about 14, one of our moves and I, I so I was old enough to go around with the realtor with my mom okay. and had my little notebook of pros and cons for each house. And I had the houses I liked and the houses that, and there was this house that I just wrote, no, just hard. No, it was out on the edge of town. It was, you know, it was a kind of an old farmhouse and and that's what my mom bought. <laughs> that was that was the house we moved into. And she had this talent for looking at the foundation of a house and being able to see what it could be. And so every time we moved, we would essentially flip a house. We didn't have that terminology. And that particular house was a was a major renovation of every part of the house, including a big addition and, you know, creating a home for us and and, you know, being able to look and see, you know, the opportunity here is, you know, a four feet move or, you know, she, she was very creative in the style and, and how to make a functional place. So I think I learned from her, you know, how to see what was possible, how to see that there was no danger in just taking off the drywall and seeing what was underneath, right? That there is no problem with doing that. And uh, actually, I'll tell you another story about another house that we that we lived in. It was a, a split level, you know, so it had it came up and one set of stairs went up and one set of stairs went down. And we hadn't lived in that house six months or something. And I came home from school and there were no stairs. And um, and it was because you know she looked at those stairs and she was like, they should go the other way. Like it, instead of going up on the left, it should go down. And um, and she was right. It completely changed the flow. It made it, you know, a much more functional design. And, you know, it was something that we, you know, changed in a week. And and there was no fear in like, well, this is the way it is, so we can't ever change it, right? So so I, I think some of those things have permeated. Um, I will say that if my brothers are listening, that the, my keen interest in remodeling, they'll say, no, no, you were just like, <laughs> like, 
the laborer who was who was there but um <laughs> but but I was paying attention and I and I and I did learn that you know the 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 base can tell you where you can go um and that there are more than one option and that you um never have to take something at face value and just say well you know we we just can't look underneath you know we we take that same approach that my mother took with drywall and and we do this as doctors with patients right sometimes you you know can see that there's maybe a problem but you aren't going to know until you peel beneath the surface a little bit more and then you suddenly see what's really going on um we do that in the in the science world as well and and i think we can do that organizationally and you know just look and see where we, where we can make you know changes there's always so much room for improvement all right exactly well, dr russell that's a fascinating story <laughs> it was an interesting way to grow up i will i will uh definitely admit so right right i i really enjoyed you uh telling that story and the way these experiences impacted have impacted you throughout your professional career is, is amazing so thank you so much for sharing you had I, a, I, I will say uh that that I am not a very handy person now. So I, oh. I, I can I can do simple home repair, but I uh but I am you know not not able to do the the gotten remodel that my mother could do. Oh well yeah it sounds like she truly had a gift for that. Yes. <laughs> well you had a nice, comfortable life with your family and a great job living in Nashville working at Vanderbilt. What was it that said to you? I should take this job. In other words, what inspired you to become the 17th director of the NCI? So I have always had just the utmost respect for the National Cancer Institute. I've known people who are, who work inside it. I've known the potential it has through the Cancer Center Network, for example. Every time I thought about this job was you know, almost like a little um, breathless, you know, to, to think like, oh, you know, this, this, this is a, you know, a, a place where I can, you know, fit in and, and really have an impact. And then it, it was really when I would think to myself for a minute, you know, how will I feel if I, if I walked away and don't, don't do this. And every, I always felt like I could not look back on my career and say, I just said no. So it it really was never a question. It is true. I loved my job at Vanderbilt. I love the people at Vanderbilt. Uh, the Vanderbilt Department of Medicine is fantastic if anyone there is listening. And I uh, I miss Vanderbilt, but I really am enjoying what I'm doing here. And um, and it it's definitely worth it to be, you know, working at this sort of pinnacle of cancer. Yeah, well, I'm I'm so happy for you, and I'm so excited that you were able to land this opportunity. And I really enjoy hearing about your excitement about it and, and your passion about it. So that's awesome. Well, what would you tell your 25-year-old self if you had a chance to give her any advice? So this has been a, an incredible ride the last 20-plus years since I was at my 25-year-old self. Um, I, when I look back on that whole experience, uh, there is really nothing that I would have changed. Literally, 
I'm, I'm sure that had it gone a different way, I would have enjoyed other other aspects, but the the route uh, that this took me, every component of it was worthwhile, fits today, and is something that I look uh, back on fondly. So what I probably would have told myself with some hindsight is to enjoy it a little bit more. I enjoyed it a lot at the time, but I was, you know, young people are always worried about, you know, what the next step is going to be and if things are going to be okay. Uh, I think I would have trusted that, that, that things, even if you can't predict um, which direction they'll go, will work out. Um, and, and that the, the best path forward will reveal itself. Um, I've counseled many people uh, to that effect now that I'm an old um, mentor. And part of that is because I, I know that when I was younger, I was, you know, I like to make a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. That that has helped me. And so I, it, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think I would have leaned in a little more and, and felt more trusting in, you know, what my personal capabilities were. Okay, I understand that. Well, Dr. Rothamel, can you also tell me about the nonprofit organization co-founded called the RMC Alliance? And can you talk about a little bit its overall mission? Sure, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the whole story of of where that came from and what it's done and continues to aim to do. So, so uh, RMC is short for the for the condition renal medullary carcinoma. It's a very rare kidney tumor that only occurs in adolescents and young adults, sort of age 10 to 25-ish, maybe 10 to 30. And it um, has a unique connection to individuals who carry the sickle cell gene. So um, uh, only have to carry one copy. So, you know, perfectly healthy uh, people, but who have one copy of sickle cell hemoglobin. Um, of course, sickle cell hemoglobin is um, uh, very tightly linked to um, African-American race. And so this is um, tends to be young African-American um, individuals. So very rare. We used to think uh, that there might be, you know, 30 or 40 people in the United States diagnosed with this every year. It's probably more than that. It's probably a number more like 400, which is still very rare, right? So. Um, so I'm a kidney cancer doctor, ran kidney cancer clinic, and uh, I'd done that for three or four years and, and had never seen this cancer. And and that's not unusual because it's very rare. And I met my first patient with renal medullary carcinoma. And a, a young man, 18 years old, you know, he shows up in his clinic uh, with his, in my clinic with his mom. And he came to my clinic. Uh, because he he was from rural North Carolina. He'd been diagnosed with renal cell carcinoma. Uh, he was uh, in sent for surgery. His kidney had been removed. He had a large renal mass, but also metastatic disease. And uh, at, the, at, at that time, the treatments were anti-antigenic agents for clear cell renal cell carcinoma, which is not what he had. But But that was not recognized. It was, the assumption was a big kidney tumor. This must be renal cell carcinoma and they they were the um the doctors had sent him up because um he was having some complications from his surgery and so he he couldn't get this anti-angiogenic drug so that's how he lands here you know a month into his diagnosis and and just one complication after another 
And, and so, you know, we went into sort of hyperdrive one to confirm that this was really renal medullary carcinoma. And, you know, two, that's not a disease that you treat with, with those agents. And, um, and there wasn't a good path for how you treat these patients. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, our team talked to people. They talked to people at the NIH. We, we talked to people at MD Anderson. We came up with a chemotherapy cocktail that we could give in concert with the combinations, uh, with the complications he was having. And, and, uh, and he responded really well to that, to that treatment. So I will tell you that in the, in the very scant literature that there was about renal medullary carcinoma, it was literally like one line in your textbook and a handful of papers, it would say um, median survival three months. Okay. I mean, which is, uh, you know, devastating. You're, you know, 18 years old and this is what we're telling you. All he wanted was to, you know, uh, graduate from high school. And um, so the response to his chemotherapy was brief, um, but he did live a year and which is not nearly long enough, but was so much longer than what we had been told to expect. Um, I remember uh, uh, toward the end of his life, he was enrolled in hospice. I happened to be driving across rural North Carolina and got a call from his mom about some symptoms. And so we actually stopped at his house and my kids, we set them up, you know, she lived way out um, on a dirt road, you know, off the GPS, had to get like sort of step-by-step directions. And we went out there and put put my kids on the doorstep and and went in and, um, you know, talked about the symptoms, but really talked to her about that, you know, how unfair all of this was, you know, that he had fallen through the cracks because he was pediatric and adult, like 18 years old, like, who do you see? He didn't have, a, you know, a doctor who could advocate for him because, you know, what 18 year old does, right? Um, and the, you know, the fact that this rare tumor was not immediately suspected, which, you know, fair enough, it's, I had never seen one and, you know, how, how could anybody else necessarily know? And, and that there wasn't a, a good treatment algorithm and, um, and, um, and that we just needed to somehow get some word out. Okay, so the effect of that conversation was that I decided to write a paper, um, talk to the people I had been on the phone with, and we wrote a little paper. That got some attention that other people were looking for, and the, the paper was like, we gave this treatment and this is how it worked. It was a very mm-hmm. simple paper. And got the attention of an advocate. And uh, this advocate, her name's um, Cora Connor. She's fantastic. She and I met her via Twitter, and uh, and and we got to talking, and and the and then the snowball just started to roll downhill, which was uh, a bunch of us who were interested in this disease hosted a think tank type meeting uh, with support from the Forback Foundation. So I'll give them a shout out for um, providing funds to be able to do a meeting like that. So we brought people from all over the world, small meeting, 20 people, and and talked about what do we need? What, you know, where can we make a difference? We need education. We need communication. We need a network. We need some biology. And we need to have clinical trials that are focused on this particular cancer so that, that we can make some inroads. We The advocates got together. Um, Cora, Cora um, uh, got together with uh, Richie Johnson and... Uh, Wander Powell, two other uh, women who had family members, um, both of them had children who um, were affected uh, by this cancer. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, advocates are, their energy and their passion is just incredible. So they really helped us learn how to sort of galvanize around a community to help create networks so that patients could more rapidly land with a center that had experience and um, helped to advocate for funding for research into renal medullary carcinoma. And that's where we decided we really needed something that brought us all together. So that's where the nonprofit came from. So um, so it does a little bit of fundraising. It is mostly about connection and creating a uh, conduit of network. And it's a different day for renal medullary carcinoma today. There are um, There's great new understanding of the biology. There are clinical trials that are dedicated uh, to this cancer. We have a much clearer roadmap and multiple papers that have um, uh, given, you know, a doctor who encounters this disease, one um, should be able to recognize it more quickly because that's, it's much more visible to the pathology community for uh, highlighting the possibility of the diagnosis. And, and there are good roadmaps for what you do and, and, you know, how, how to approach these patients because it's so different than other cancers. It's brought the pediatric and adult community um, much more closely together. It's actually a listed part of some of the initiatives of the NCI. The um, Childhood Cancer Data Initiative has some uh, rare pediatric tumors that are sort of the sort of landmark uh, tumors that they're they're working on, and it, it is one of them. And so uh, the, it, this whole experience for me, which has been now over 15 years has been, I mean, it, it, it just highlights so many parts of our system. It's, it's, you know, disparities in access to care. It's, you know, interesting biology that falls outside the norms of, of the conventional cancers. It's opportunities for, for new drug development. It's, you know, societal and grant funding. It's, it's, I've learned so much and, and, you know, all because, this kid landed in my clinic and, you know, his, his mom was willing to sit down and have a conversation with me. So. Oh, wow. And, and, that... and then I'll give a big shout out to, um, so I, I co-founded it with Nazar Tanir at MD Anderson. He had a fellow who um, worked with him who really took renal medullary carcinoma as his like life passion, Pavlos Masul. And so he really runs the organization um, at this point. So. Wow. Oh, Dr. Rothwell, thank you so much. That that was a heartbreaking story, but I appreciate you sharing it. And I'm just happy to know that that you, the RMC Alliance, and just are making a difference in researching this cancer and giving hope to these young patients and their families. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing. Well, before we conclude, Dr. Rothwell, is there anything else that you would care to add? Well, I think, I think I've said it before, but I, I will say it again. Uh, there has never been a better time to be doing cancer research. So I think uh, in this role, I'm very excited to bring build connections and to expand the opportunities in cancer research and to encourage more people to choose a career path in cancer research. So uh, that'll be my last plug. Um, everyone needs to be a part of the overall, but if people want a career in this space, there, there really isn't anything better. 
Okay, perfect. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Rathmel, for taking out time to speak with me today. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and congratulations on becoming the 17th director of NCI. That is fantastic. And I also appreciate you sharing your amazing story and allowing us to get to know you a little better. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. HealthCast, along with GovCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com dot com.